Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, tonight we're going through the book of Matthew. Uh, we just began last week and Matthew is this key book uh, really showing that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. There's more, we're going to see prophetic pictures in there than anything else. It's written by a Jewish person to a bunch of Jewish people in a way that they would understand. Well, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word, that you've given your word. And Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it's timeless. And we thank you that it's applicable even for today, that there is much application, many things that we can learn. So Lord, we ask that today that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled this message really the, the revelation concerning the Messiah. See, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. He's the long-awaited one all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Even before Israel's nation, there was this, this hope, this promise of one to come. Well, we're going to look at the story of Jesus, the birth really of him. And, and it's Matthew's gospel, the good news, and it's seen, which is interesting, Matthew, is seen through Joseph's eyes. Now, if you were looking at a similar story, similar uh, time frame, uh, you'd be looking at the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, but you're looking through Mary's eyes. Now, there's no attempt, either in Luke or Matthew, to bring them together, to line them up, yet there's one central fact that's the same. But Instead of Luke's picture of excited Galilean girl who's learning to, to give birth to God, the Messiah, Matthew shows it from a, a sober Joseph discovering that his fiancée is pregnant. We're going to see the crisis, the predicament that Joseph's in, and each brings a different thing to the table. Each one brings a different aspect and help us to understand the, the humanity of Jesus and the humanity of the people around. And that they're people just like you and me. The only point that really is consistent through the scripture in, in both of these stories, it comes close in the fact that an angel comes to speak to Joseph, as Gabriel said to Mary. Both hear that phrase, don't be afraid important word for us too when we read the, the counts of the birth of Jesus. Many are afraid to acknowledge it and deal with it and they can't understand it and there's going to be some details that it's hard to understand but we have to understand we're looking through an eastern mind. We're looking through something that happened 2,000 years ago in different culture than our own culture. Well look with me. We're going to begin at verse 18, and we're seeing Joseph's really distress. Verse 18 says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Well, stop and think. Here's a, here's a woman who is highly favored of all women in, in the world, and it's just amazing that we see this. She's betrothed, and she's betrothed to, to be this marriage but as to bear for the time is the deepest reproach of any woman could ever suffer. 
Mary suffered deeply all that she would go through and to even be alone and separated and people looking down upon her, finding fault with her. And sometimes I think about that's what happens to you and me when we become believers. We become separated from the world, sometimes even from the friends we like. They begin to look down at us. We're, we're different. Well, it's not the same as Mary. There are feelings that we all experience, and the feelings that you feel are real. Whether, whether someone else accepts them or not, they're honest. And that's what we're going to see of Joseph, Joseph's feelings in this context. And again, to, to see Mary, is you need to probably look more at the book of Luke. Well, again, in verse 18, it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed or espoused, there's three steps, again, in a, in a Jewish marriage. And you have to understand, there's the, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. They were, again, considered Judah. And then you had the north, northern tribes. That would be Israel. But really, the area we're going to be talking about is even more north, Galilee. And Galileans were totally different than those in Judea. See, the Galileans had a greater Hellenistic influence. That means a Greek influence. So it's important to understand, not only do we see through the eyes of a, a, a Jewish person, but a Jewish person who has been influenced, again, by Greek thinking. Now, this betrothal period, it's, it's what many would call today an engagement. Uh, parents determine when the children were very young, often, that they would marry. And this was determined at a very young age. It could be four or five years old, could even be younger in some cases, to, to bring families together, sometimes peace, sometimes for, for money. But the very first stage when they were young, this betrothal period that we're talking about, is it's later on when the couple agree or disagree even with this engagement. See, it's when they're betrothed and they agree together it becomes a, a binding contract, just as if they were married, but the marriage is not consummated. And for most of the southern kingdom, and even parts of the northern kingdom, it would be a period of one year. But marked down, for those in Galilee, it was a different story that we'll talk more about another time. It wasn't exactly a year. It was when the father chose that time. Well, this patrol, as I mentioned, uh, was immediately binding. As I said, every place but Galilee for one year long. But Galilee, it was different. They, the groom would go home and be with his father, and his father would protect him and help keep him pure because it was an honor society. She would go and be with her family and again would be protected. They would not come together in any sexual relationship, but it was still a binding. In fact, the only way that you could prevent it from this time, once both had accepted that terms, was it was only breakable by divorce. And this betrothal formalized the marriage contract, and, and most people don't realize it's, it's more than just a contract. It's a covenant. What is a covenant? And sometimes I like to bring this out because most people in our, our culture don't understand a, a covenant. And, I'd like to go back and talk about just for a second the story of Abraham and a covenant made between God when he would say he would bless all the nations and bless the seed. There was going to be a covenant made and there would be animals slayed and they would be cut in half and, and there'd be a slight slope that would come down and they would cut a groove in it 
and an animal here and half an animal here and the blood would run in together and it would all run together and they would walk bare through, barefoot through this little groove and the blood would be upon each one of their head. It was taken very seriously. Abraham, it was so much when he's making this covenant with God, he knew he couldn't keep it. He Anxiety was so much that he fell asleep and, and there was a smoking like a flax that went through, demonstrating that, that the covenant was upon God and not upon Abraham. As serious as that commitment was there, that unconditional covenant God had made with Abraham, the marriage relationship is to be a covenant only broken by death. The blood upon one or blood upon the other, the only thing that could really divide them would be adultery. Adultery was considered also a death. Well, again, as we continue in, in this text, we find that Joseph discovers that Mary's pregnant. She's betrothed to, to him. But now she's pregnant, and he knows it's, it's not him. And, and again, it's after the betrothed, and at the, at the, at the agreed time, or when the father had determined for a Galilean wedding, then that, that marriage would be consummated. And it's important they would come together. But what I notice in the text, I don't know if you saw it too, it says before they came together physically, a sexual relationship, she was found to be with child. And notice it was by the Holy Spirit. See, this emphasis is on the work of the Holy Spirit here. Look ahead to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. This is now, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And it's important in, in this that we see again in verse 21 that he will save his people. Jesus come for the very purpose to die for the sins of the world. Now, it's hard for you and me to, to really understand when this perfect time, and why didn't he come sooner, some would say. Why not today? Well, the fact is, for us today, he has come. What I like to turn to is Galatians chapter 4. Let me read verses 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of time had came, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive his adoption as sons. And you'll see how this plays together again in a moment. Because you're all sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, bringing us into this personal, intimate relationship. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a, a son, if a son an heir through God. See, he came to die, to, to make us an heir, to bring us into the, the family of God. Colossians 2, 13 and 15, follow with me. When you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, another translation says in the uncircumcision of your heart, meaning an unbeliever, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of the debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, 
and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This was the sole purpose that Jesus would come to redeem, to buy us back, to bring us into the family of God. Well, look at the decision Joseph made in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a, a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. I like what Herbert Spencer wrote. He said, marriage is a word which should be pronounced mirage. And to, to Joseph, it, it, it kind of felt that way. There's nothing like it seemed like it was going to be, nothing that he expected. In fact, his fiance is three months pregnant, but it's, it's not by him. Frustrated, not knowing what to do, Joseph faced, in his relationship with Mary, all the future dreams, the hopes, they were gone up in smoke. I'm sure he was more than just heartbroken when Mary told him. He evidently, from the text we see again, that he didn't accept the explanation because he's looking to divorce her. He wanted to end the marriage and put her away privately. And, but Joseph faced this predicament of his life in a very mature way. See, he cared and truly loved her. Verse 19, again, it says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. And I like that because it gives us a glimpse of Joseph's character. Joseph was a righteous man. Well, how was Joseph a righteous man, you might ask? Well, actually, that term for the, the righteous man gives us this idea he was spiritually righteous, Legal righteous and spiritually means that, again, that relationship that he would walk out by faith. Legal means that he's justified, that God knew his, his heart. In fact, to understand really what a, a righteous man is, I, I think we can get a glimpse of two different characters I want to call attention to. The first is Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Then he believed the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. See, Abram believed the Lord. The Lord here, four capital letters, meaning the covenant God that he was in this covenant relationship with. He simply trusted, believed in him, believed upon him, and God reckoned it or credited to him in a counting term, you're just. You're saved, you're righteous. That's what happens when you and I believe and trust in Jesus Christ before we even act out. God says, I see you just as you never sinned. That's our position in Christ. And I believe that Joseph, again, this word reflects, again, a legal and a spiritual righteousness that position-wise, God says, this is my man, Joseph. He is righteous. In fact, I think about the book of Job for a moment. Job 1.8, let me read again. The Lord, again, this covenant God, said to Satan, though, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. First, Abraham is this person 
who believes God, God accredits him as righteousness before he even acts out. We don't know or see his righteousness until Genesis 22, where he goes up the hill with Abraham taking Isaac. Here now we see this practical righteousness. God recognizes it, calls him blameless, upright, referring to righteousness, fearing God, walking humbly, reverently before God, and turning away from evil. That's what a righteous man does. He turns away from evil. He fears God. He walks humbly before his God. He's upright. He's blameless. But it doesn't mean he's without sin. Well, Joseph in our text here, he's righteous in character. But he's placed in this dilemma. He had to divorce Mary because of her pregnancy. But I love the fact that he doesn't want to disgrace her. He did not want to make an example of her by disgracing her publicly. See, this is what would be done if she was an adulteress. And in his mind, she's compromised. What does he do? The people are going to talk. Deuteronomy 24.1, it talks about if there was a divorce, then there had to be a writ given, or if it was in the means of adultery, they would even stone them. And there would need to be at least two witnesses present. But I love this picture of really Joseph. It, it really gives us this wonderful illustration for every believer to follow, because Joseph's life demonstrated Mercy and grace, even when it appeared that the other person, in this case Mary, was not walking in the will of God. And that's what it appeared to be to him. She had not kept herself for him. She had not kept the law. But he was merciful. He was gracious. He didn't seek to destroy her. See, we see Joseph, he, he, he believed God. I believe he had a deep love for God. And Mary, too. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. See, when a person does that, they, they walk in the will of God. They follow God. They don't run ahead of God. They're looking in everything they do to, to bring glory and honor. They're concerned about the name of God, the reputation of God. And then in Leviticus 19, 18, and certainly I could go to New Testament verses, but you have to understand, these were Jewish people. They understood the law. They didn't understand the New Testament at that time. Leviticus 19, 18 says this, You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love that about Joseph. He doesn't seek vengeance. He's hurt, but he doesn't seek to hurt her. He doesn't seek to, to crush her. No, Joseph seeks to demonstrate mercy and grace, even when he's been hurt, when he's been crushed. Think for a second the New Testament, 1 Peter 4 eight. above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Because he loved God and he loved Mary, he wasn't going to destroy her. And sad in our culture, we see people all around us being hurt and want to destroy one another, want to get even with one another, want vengeance, and they bring pain and sorrow upon themselves. In the New Testament, again, Ephesians 4.32, one of my most favorite verses, it says, 
be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And, and we see that in Joseph's life. He, he's, he's tender-hearted. He, he doesn't want to disgrace her. He doesn't want to hurt her. He's not seeking vengeance, but he says, I, I can't do this. So quietly he wants to divorce her. So we see these two things about Joseph. It is he believed God. He's, he's justified by his, his belief, his faith. That speaks of his position. But we see Joseph was a righteous man too because he walked in obedience to God. He, he kept the word. He learned to trust and obey the word of God. He, he demonstrated this mercy and grace even though he didn't fully understand everything. And there's one more thing about him here. Later on when Joseph, and we'll talk about it in a second, is given the name of Jesus to the child, it says, I assume the responsibility. This is my heir. He becomes the, the legal heir by adoption by doing this. All the people have been looking and talking, thinking that Joseph and Mary must have lied together and, and talking behind their back. He was willing to bear the shame to obey God to be kind and tender to Mary, to do what's right in the sight of God. And I think that's a wonderful thing for you and me, that will we do what's right? Or will we go through this life as destroyers in life? And maybe you're a destroyer. In my past life before a believer, I was, I was a destroyer, never proud of it. And I realized, yes, I was hurt. Yes, I crushed people but I did more damage than it would damage to me. Well, look at verse 20. We see Joseph's dream. But when he considered this, behold, when he's considering the, the, the marriage and what to do, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a, in a dream. And I, I love that picture. First of all, I want to comment on that, that angel of the Lord. See, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was considered what we call a, a theophany. From Justin on in the early church fathers, it was a figure regarded as the precarnate Christ. It was Christ visiting this earth in, in human form, revealing the, the very heart of God, manifesting God's presence to the people, that they would know that God is with them. In fact, the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is found over 50 times in the Old Testament. And these are justifiable reasons for viewing these appearances as theophanies, especially since the angel of the Lord is frequently equaled or equated with God. Abraham's example, Hagar's example, Moses' example. But let me talk about the one with Moses especially. It's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 6. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning with a fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for this place in which you're standing is a holy ground. He was standing in the presence of God is what God was revealing. In verse 6, and he said also, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. See, in the Old Testament, all these little events, one after another, 50 of them, all relate to a theophany, who God is. He manifested himself in some way, whether it be in the flesh, in the form of an angel, and in a burning bush. A theophany. Again, the New Testament, though, it, it's different because there's no clear uh, making of any distinction, the same as what we see in the Old Testament. Now, an angel, an angel of the Lord in, in the New Testament, is a, an angel is a, a ministering spirit, and these angels have been given ministering spirits to man. So this angel is one who is sent by the Lord. It, it's not a, a precarnate visitation of, of Jesus Christ. It doesn't appear that way. But it is supernatural because it's an angel, a ministering spirit, and it comes to convince Joseph that Mary has not been unfaithful and that he's to proceed on with these wedding plans. Note that the angel addresses Joseph as, as the son of David, which helps prepare him for the promise, again, that Mary will give birth to a son who will fulfill the role of the Messiah. But Israel was looking for something different, a political liberator for the Jews. He was going to bring salvation, and one time he will rule and reign on his second coming. But what he desired to bring is a, a spiritual salvation, a spiritual peace, the awareness that God is with us, that he tabernacled among us, that he's here today. He's here with me. He's here with you, that he cares he gave himself for you and me. Again, there will be a time when Christ does come and set up his kingdom on earth. But now we simply pray for his kingdom to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And we have that assurance one day that will be. But I'd like to call your attention to the word dreams. It's common, you know, uh, means of revelation in the book of Matthew. In fact, there's uh, five different places where it speaks about these dreams just in the book of Matthew. In fact, when you go to the Old Testament, uh, like his own namesake in Genesis, Joseph, too, was a recipient of dreams. But it's interesting, dreams today, you can go study dreams in school and in Christian, what appear to be Christian colleges, you, you study dreams for three or four years, but when I Look at the Bible, those who are really seeking after God. God gives them a dream, and God reveals himself personally to them. They don't need someone to teach them. They just need to see and hear from God. They don't need to read into the dreams. But indeed, dreams fascinate people. They interest people. And every one of us have had dreams of some kind, distinctive ones, even maybe a couple that we... Remember, but oftentimes dreams fade away, fly away. Sometimes they're brought about by anxiety or care or a create of some kind of fear. In the case of Job, when you go back and read in Job, again, in, in the book of Jeremiah, we see that they produced by the mind's delusion. In fact, let me read Jeremiah 23, verses 25 through 27. I've I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesied falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long is there anything 
from the hearts of these prophets who prophesied falsehood, even these prophets of deception in their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as the fathers forgot my name because of all. I don't know your experience, but my experience and experience with friends that have gone through dreams for the, the believer, I believe, are usually simple. In my own life, I was praying, Lord, I, I want to hate sin. See, we sin, and, and, and we don't hate sin, or we wouldn't sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season. We find it interesting, and certainly it burns us later on. But I was praying, God, give me such a hatred that I'd walk in your holiness. And I prayed, and probably for six months, then I stopped. Forgot even about the prayer for a moment. And then for three nights in a row, I had these horrible dreams of being tied down and watching wickedness and evil things that no one would want to see. And I'm going, Lord, Lord, why do I have to see these things? Lord, can, can, I, can I see something wonderful? Can I be in a field of flowers? And I kept praying, Lord, take these things away. And after the third night, I felt as if God spoke to my heart and said, you're praying that you wanted to hate sin and you have to see the consequences of sin to hate it. And I understood that God allowed me to see those things, the horror, the consequences in order to hate sin. I believe that dreams come as a result of, in many cases for the Christian, we're, we're praying fervently for something. And God's speaking to us because sometimes we're so busy praying, we're not listening to him. And he has to take us this place where he has our captive audience, our captive attention. Sometimes dreams come from just watching things we shouldn't watch. When God speaks, we know it's him. Maybe no one else knows, but we've been praying, we've been seeking, and, and God's speaking to us quiet, still voice sometimes. Sometimes it roars in a dream. And it will always line up with the Scripture. It always line up with the very character of God. It will never cause you or me to turn away. I don't need to study dreams. I need to know more about Jesus Christ. I need to know more about His heart, His Word, what's pleasing and honoring. And, and I believe that Joseph was a man that loved God. And he loved Mary. He wanted to honor God. And God met him right where he is. And he's probably crying out in agony to God. And God sent an angel in the dream, just as he did to Daniel and other people. Look at verse 20. So Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived is in her the Holy Spirit. I like that. Jo Joseph is, is called the son of David, reminding him he's in the Davidic line. It, it's, it's through this Davidic line that the, the Messiah would come, preparing him again to, to be the one looking forward to this legal adoption of, of Jesus. As well, just simply bringing Jesus in this Davidic line. The child was conceived. It's, it's a direct work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something he's doing other than acting in obedience to what God shows him. 
it's clear that the Spirit is the major emphasis really in this section, indicating the divine providence of God is at work. God's at work all the time, all around. Well, this is really God's grace and action. The world doesn't deserve a Messiah, but God is continually reaching out. Man can't reach up to God, but God descends down and becomes a man. And he becomes that sinless lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb that would die for this world. This is God's grace and action. I never get tired of seeing or hearing the, really the grace of God. But I'm fascinated with this next thought. We see that phrase, do not be afraid. It's 47 times we see this phrase in the Bible. Have you ever been afraid? Oh, I don't mean just startled, but really afraid. It's when you and I are afraid, we're full of anxiety. Our minds are just running out of control. It's, it's then that we turn to the Lord. I love that. But God. See, when you're afraid, you, you reach up, you turn to the rock that's higher than you. He is your strong tower, and I believe that's exactly what Joseph is doing. And the Lord speaks, do not be afraid. He's saying, I'm in control. This is my providence. We need to learn to, to cast our cares upon him who cares for us. In fact, in Mark 10, 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God is still a miracle-working God. You and I don't perform miracles. God performs miracles through us for us to reveal himself. Our part is like 1 Peter 5, 7, casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And I believe that's what Joseph was doing, casting his care. God said, just, again, don't be afraid. I'm here. Maybe you remember your kids when they were little. They were fearful. They run into your arms and they comfort you and they feel safe and secure. I need to run into the arms of the Lord. I love that passage that I read in Galatians. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. But then when we realize that we're kids, we cry out, Abba, Father, like a little child running into the arms. That's the picture of Joseph. That's the picture for you and me. Running into the arms is when we run into his arm in the safety of him. We find our peace. We find our strength, our grace to do what God has called us to do. I've been watching recently a, a lot of stories about martyrs and all they went through and the gift of faith and how God met them in every case. And God will meet you no matter what you're going through in your own life. Look at verse 21. Notice what it says, she will bear a son. Notice the Son is capital S, referring to the Son of God, the Son of David. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
This is really, it reflects again Isaiah 7.14 in the Septuagint, which we'll develop more when we get to verse 23. It's clear, it emphasizes again the focus on that virgin birth. Verse 21, it says also, notice what it says, you shall call his name Jesus. Yoshua. But they didn't use the vowels at that time. But the significance of that name means God is salvation. Eventually it would be shortened to Yeshua. It's so interesting that name just means he saves. God is salvation. He saves you from the sins. Remember when Peter was walking on the water and he says, Lord, save me. The Lord's waiting for you to call out to him to save you. Or when Jesus was crossing the sea and the storms were raging, the waves perhaps were 25 feet tall, and the fishermen, oh, they had known the storms on the sea that could come off again off the mountains, but they're, they're just losing control. And yet Jesus calls out and calms the sea. You people of little faith. See, the name of Jesus is salvation. Perhaps you remember several years ago there was a song. It was um, something about that name. I can't sing it. I wish I could sing it. <laughs> if everyone else is singing, then I can sing and you don't hear me, but it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after a rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim the kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. There's no other name a person be saved but in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name because the name speaks of the character and the purpose that he came. He came to save you and me from our sins. We have a choice. Will we let him? See, God promises uh, his salvation will come to his people. But again, as I mentioned, the Jewish people mistakenly uh, interpret those terms, uh, again, to save physically from the Roman Empire. But he wants to deliver his people uh, from the destroying people, they say. But he does. The enemy, the roaring lion, is looking to destroy you and me, to save us from our own wickedness and sin and save us to himself. Look at verse 22, though. Now all this took place to fulfill what is spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. You know, when you're in the book of Matthew, again, he's writing to the nation of Israel. It's very Jewish sensitive, and he's pointing to the fact that these things fulfilled the prophecy. This is the one the scripture speaks of. And to use that word, that phrase, to fulfill the book of Matthew, there's 10 different places that Jesus is clearly described as fulfilling. Again, just saying this fulfills. But yet there are many times where it doesn't describe it, but the things he does fulfills the text itself. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the promised one. 
See, Matthew's appealing to the nation. He's appealing to those Jewish, sensey people that are, are questioning it. Could this be the Messiah? Is this the anointed one? Look at the things he did. And they would talk long after his death. And they would share and point to the fact that this is the Christ. See, his attempt is really to show that he's the long-awaited one, the Messiah, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He lived a sinless life, literally performed miracles that fulfilled, again, those messianic miracles. He went to a cross and died for the sins of the world resurrected on the third day, fulfilling over 300 messianic prophecies alone on his first coming, and yet he's still coming and he will fulfill literally the rest. Matthew quotes again Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and shall name, again shall call his name Emmanuel, translated meaning God with us in verse 23. Again, the, the context, that passage of Isaiah 7.14 was assigned to King Hezekiah. That's probably Isaiah's own son. But again, it was a, a sign. There were messianic signs that would point to that ultimate Davidic ruler that would come. And you see it in, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and Isaiah 11. His name, notice again in that text, is Emmanuel showing that he is really God with us. In the Gospel of John, it says, and he tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent among us. He came to his own, but they received him not. See, he was God with us. He was deity. He was God in the flesh. Let me read Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. Notice what it says. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. And I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. It's hard to imagine that God could dwell among us, walk among us, that one day you and I will be with him. Think back to the Garden of Eden, when again God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then sin entered that world and that fellowship was broken. It's our sins that would separate. So he had to come and he had to die for our sins. He wants a relationship with us. He wants us to know him, to trust in him, to rest in him, to come to him with every burden, to cast our cares upon him. Look at verse 24. We see the marriage following the dream. And Joseph awoke from this sleep. And notice that he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. He married her. He assumed the responsibility for the pregnancy. He was embracing her shame, and it became his shame. Jesus Christ took our shame, our sin, upon him on the cross. See, the couple must have been really a, a long matter of gossip, village gossip. People must have talked, whispered as they went by. Fun to talk story for some people. But Joseph valued God's direct calling through the dream. 
to do what is expected of him, to do what is right. He had a right relationship with God. Positionally, he was safe, but he wanted to honor God. Look at verse 25. It says, but, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, naming the boy, recognize that this child is, is Joseph's legal son. He's saying, look, his name is Jesus. This is my son. Legally, it's by adoption. Three times in this section, verse 18 and 20 and 25, Mary's described as having no union with Joseph. But it speaks of this adoption. See, Jesus was the, the child of the Holy Spirit. Mary's seed, it was spoken of elsewhere. Here it is, the Holy Spirit made this pre-assistant second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, a human being. God became flesh and dwelt among them. And, and this, this is full of doctrine, things that the church have to accept. Because if people do not accept these facts, they are in apostasy, and they are not true believers. In fact, it was the Nicene Creed in AD 381, this first council at Constantinople, they summarize the scripture as taught. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. You know that many churches do not believe, and this is important to understand, they do not believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. So if they do not believe that, what Jesus do they believe in? Either you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, as the Bible describes, or you believe in a false Jesus, another Jesus, who is not the Messiah, who is not the Savior of the world. We're in a time, as I've been mentioning, of apostasy, when the true church is turning away from the true and living God. Yesterday there was an article in, in the Lutheran church. It speaks in general, not all Lutherans agree with this, have come up with their own Bible. And the word Israel has been replaced in the Bible in every place except for one place. And it's only in the name of a person. If it's Israel as a country, it's the, the land of the Jews. They've done everything to remove Israel away out of the Bible. They're changing the Bible because they are anti-Semitic, so many of them. So many of them believe that they are spiritual Israel, that God has kicked them away, but that's not true. God's done with them, but he's not. It's not what the Bible says. It's so essential that you believe, and I believe, what the Bible says. Because if you're in a place and they're not teaching the Bible, then you're slowly being drawn away from the truth, the truth that will set you free of knowing the true and living God. Well, Joseph and Mary, they never consummated the marriage prior to this birth of Jesus. No. Yet the reality of Joseph and Mary, uh, they couldn't not avoid physical closeness or contact in some way but they exercise self-control, reverence, and honor for God. Now, it was normal, and still normal today, that newly married couples, they, they live together, and oftentimes in a small room, it was in the case in Israel, even in the, the groom's uh, parents' house above. 
And during this time, yet they remain faithful to the Lord. Mary was a virgin, and they never consummated that marriage until after Jesus was born. Joseph believed and acted on what the angel had told him, taking Mary, Mary as his wife, taking the responsibility of Jesus' son, not being able to put all the pieces together, but simply believing and trusting in God. See, all the Old Testament, while we have the New Testament, well, we understand about Jesus when we look, but stop and think. Jesus, after his death and resurrection on, the, on that road to Emmaus, I'd like to read Luke 24, 44, and 45. He said this about the Old Testament. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things are written about me in the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind, minds to the understanding of the scripture. See, the book of Matthew focuses on fulfilling the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He was the king of the Jews. He was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited one. He is the savior of the world. He went to the cross and died for you and me, raised on that third day, ascended to the heaven to be with the Father. He's given you and me the great commission to go and make disciples. We have a Savior that saved us from our sins, saved us to himself, saved us to something much bigger than you and me. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, that excites us, it changes us, it transforms us. It washes our minds and renews our spirit. Thank you that there is power in the word of God and your Holy Spirit takes this word and works in us, changing us to be the men, the women that you have us be. Help us to literally take your word and hide it in our hearts. Help us to stand on these biblical truths of who Jesus Christ is and why he came. God, we pray for those that are falling into apostasy, drifting away from the truth that would set them free. God, open up their eyes. Bring them back to yourself. Do not let them have their way. And all God's people said, amen.